0: We're going to be in Revelation chapter 14 tonight. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 14. You know, I think it's a good general rule of thumb that anytime uh, something is written in the scripture, we ought to pay very close attention to it, especially when it's either God talking or one of God's messengers talking, be it a prophet or or be it an angel. Uh, Those are things that we ought to listen to. Those are things that we ought to pay very close attention to, and tonight we're going to be talking about what three angels say, the message that three different angels say, and heaven's response uh, to their proclamations. Revelation chapter 14, to kind of set the scene, to get us back into things, because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Revelation. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 14, John looks and he sees standing on top of Mount Zion Christ, he sees the Lamb, and with the Lamb are these 144,000, these that are marked, and just as, just as the beast has his followers and his worshipers who are marked with his mark, so the Lamb, the true Christ, has his followers, and they are standing with him on Mount Zion, marked with the mark on his, of his name on their foreheads, and, 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 there, he hears this voice calling out, and this voice describing the people who are there, people who are following Christ, people who are who are redeemed by the Lamb. And you know, we we sing about being redeemed, and we sing about that redemption drawing nigh, and 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 that that brings us to a very important question: Are you one of the redeemed? Are you one of those ones? who Christ has saved from their sins, who has surrendered, who has bowed the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. But these are folks that are completely devoted to him, standing with him, going where he goes, doing his work. And now as John is watching this unfold, he looks up as an angel soars directly overhead and the scene transitions from focus on the Lamb on top of the mountain to what the Lamb's messengers, these three angels, call out. So read with me. Stand if you're able to. Uh, if you're in a position where you can stand, Revelation 14, we're going to read verses 6 through 13 tonight. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is battle on the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehand or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength, into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Father, as we read your word, as we hear the calling of angels and the response of heaven, Father, I pray that their words would settle deep into our hearts, drive them past the topsoil, break apart, break apart the rocks that it may get deep within us, that we may live your word and bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Angels calling. Three angels, each with a little bit different message that all kind of tie together. We've been talking a lot over the last few weeks because uh, of the series in Revelation, but even with Jesus's parables, we're talking a lot about this idea of judgment, being ready for the Son of Man to come, being a faithful witness, a faithful servant of Christ in preparation for his return, repenting of our sins and recognizing our fruitlessness so that we may bear fruit for him. We've been talking a lot about judgment. We've been talking a lot about the thing which is to come. And tonight's no different. This is another message on judgment. But this time we're going to hear the proclamations of three angels. And those three angels, well, they're giving us warnings that we ought to heed. They're giving us warnings that we ought to heed not only uh, to know what God is going to do, but also to know... um, that it's universal. This isn't a, a judgment that happens on one group of people or in one place or particular location. This is a judgment on the world. It is God's judgment, and it is both complete and it is global. It is it is not lacking in any place, not lacking on any sin. God's judgment will happen. So let us heed the warnings of these three angels. The first call The first angel's call is a call to respond. Listen in verses six and seven. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This angel is calling us to respond. You can see that in the fact of who he calls us to respond to. But even before that, you see it from the, from even before he speaks, because the call to respond begins with an eternal content. Look in verse six again. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. This angel's message is the message of the gospel. It is the same word used to describe four books about Jesus. It is the same word that's used throughout the New Testament to describe the good news, to describe the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and how that can apply to men's hearts to change their lives, to forgive their sins, and to make them right with God. This is an eternal gospel. It's not a gospel that just came on the scene. God's been working this out from before history. Even before he sets into motion the events that would shape our world, before he called, let there be light, God's eternal gospel was already worked out. It was already in God's mind what would happen. He knew men would sin. He knew that we would be given the choice and we would choose to sin. He knew from the first bite of that fruit in the garden, he knew every single thing that we would do. You and me, every act of treason against him, every time that we would turn our backs on him and run from him, every time that we would deny him, every nail that would go into the hands and feet of Jesus, he knew about him. He knew every single curse word, every single false thing that we would say, every single thing that we would do that would directly oppose his will. He knew it all. And yet, the eternal gospel remains and this eternal gospel goes, it, it, it doesn't, it's not just limited. It's not just an unlimited time frame, but limited audience. It's an eternal content with a global context. An eternal gospel to proclaim to whom? To every nation. That's a geopolitical word. That's a word used for describing countries. You know, um, I have a globe that my... Uh, father-in-law had. I don't know when he got it. It was years ago when he got it. Uh, he gave it to us, and the globe has on it the USSR. It's, it's that old, okay? They keep having to update maps because countries and boundaries keep changing. They keep shifting, they keep moving. Men men fight civil wars and countries break apart or countries uh, come together in some cases to make other countries. Sometimes a country will take over another country. Sometimes a country will vie for its own independence. And these maps, they keep changing, they keep altering because of the affairs of men and, and, and the the diplomacy of nations that goes about. It doesn't matter what nation you are. It doesn't matter what you used to be or what you will be in the future. The gospel's for you. And it's not just geopolitical boundaries that it crosses. It crosses familial boundaries too, not only for uh, every nation, but every tribe. That, that's the family. That's the relationships. That's the people you come from. That's your kin. That's the folks that whether you want to admit it or not, you're related to. You may not want to claim some of them. I understand that, but it's for every tribe. It's not for some tribes. It's not for some families. It's not for the rich. It's not for the well-to-do. It's not for the, the connected families, the ones with old money, the ones that run the town. It's for every tribe. And it's not just family boundaries either. It crosses over linguistic boundaries. It's not only for every nation and for every tribe, it's for every language. I love Psalm, uh, I think it's Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display language, they display knowledge. There is no voice nor language in which their voice is not heard. There's no speech. There's nothing. There's, it, it translates into every language. It translates into sign language. It translates into the language of sailors drunken in a bar. And it translates to the language of highfalutin. It translates to the academics and to the peasants. It translates to the well-to-do. And the much ado about nothings it translates into every language. Why? Because it's an eternal gospel that applies to everybody. You see, this is a, this is a message for every nation. It's for every tribe. It's for every language and it's for every people. That's kind of a social division, isn't it? Even within language, even within tribes or between tribes, even within nations, there are just groups of people. You got the cheerleaders, the preppies. You got, you got the goths, people that dress in all black. And you got, you got people that are just rednecks that if they paint their truck camo, they can't find it. You got people that, well, you got people that worry about anything and everything. You got cat lovers and dog lovers. You got Alabama and Auburn. It's amazing the types of ways that we will, we will divide ourselves into all these different groups. And yet the same gospel applies to each and every one. See, this gospel is a boundary overcoming gospel. It can't be limited. It can't be focused in on one particular group or one particular society or one particular language. That's not the way the gospel works. Just when you think you've got it contained, turns out there's millions of Christians underground in a country that thought that they could completely do away with Christianity. Even, dare I say this, even in a country that gives backhanded persecution. Oh, it's not direct. It's, it's indirect. The gospel still belongs there. No matter how hard people have tried, no matter what they've done to get rid of the gospel, it won't go away. Do you know why? Is it because it's a popular message? Not really. It's not really a popular message. There's a lot of folks that say that they're Christians, but the message of Jesus is really not all that popular. You are terrible. You were born wrong the first time. You need a new birth to fix you because you're so messed up. It's not exactly uh, how to make friends and influence people kind of talk. But yet this gospel has survived. Survived for millennia. It thrives around the world because it's his gospel and it is for the whole earth. It's a gospel, an eternal gospel with a global context. But it's also, this message that the angel proclaims, it's also a very fundamental concept. It's something that's very basic, something that, that really we ought to get. Listen to what he says in verse 7. This is the angel's words, and he said with a loud voice, fear God, And give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Do you want to know what the fundamental concept of this angel's call to response is? God has done great things. So give him the credit he deserves. That's what this angel is saying. He says it in a couple different commands. Fear God. That's how we think about God. That's the reverence and the awe and the respect that we apply to God when we think of him. This is not to say that we scurry away like a cockroach when the light gets turned on because we're afraid God's going to strike us down with lightning. That's not a healthy fear of God. But at the same time, it doesn't mean Jesus is my co-pilot. And I can just treat him willy-nilly however I like because me and him are buddies. No, there's a difference. There's a reverence and an awe to the divine being, to God himself that does not belong to us and it makes him different from us. And if we forget that, whether in one way to say he's not personal at all or the other way to say he's too personal, well, then we've got a wrong view of God. We need to think of him in the right way. We need to fear him. I keep... Keep coming back to C.S. Lewis. He's just hes just that good. Lucy, this is in Narnia. Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver is describing Aslan. Mr. Beaver is talking about how ferocious he is. And Lucy says, oh my goodness, he sounds terrifying. Is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, oh dear, haven't you been listening? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. If your God is safe, you got the wrong God. He should be feared. We should put him on a pedestal and recognize that he's different from us because he is different from us. But he's not so different from us that we can't approach him at all. You see, because God has put his image within us and God has made a way through his son for us to approach him, we can come before the throne with boldness But at the same time, we don't come bold because of who we are. We become bold because of what he's done for us. How we think of God has to be different from how most people do. Because most people pass him off flippantly as though he doesn't matter or act like he's the ultimate Karen, ready to strike us down in a moment's notice just because of whatever he doesn't like. And God's neither of those things. Fear God. Think about him the right way. Give him glory, fear God, and give him glory. You see, that's how we respond to what we think of God. You see, when we put the right picture of God in our mind, it pulls us, draws us to respond to him in the right way. And that way is giving him glory. And we can do that in any number of ways. If you're wrong, say you're wrong. I think of Achan. Israel goes into Jericho, and the walls are coming, tumbling down, Right? They walk, march around the city, just as God said. They blow the trumpets. They shout the great shout. The walls come down. They, they take over the city. God said, destroy everything. Everything is devoted to destruction. It's, it's almost like a first fruits of the Holy Land because this is the first city they're attacking. And God says, nothing survives. Don't save any animals. Don't save any people. Don't save any stuff. Just, just destroy it all. And Aiken says, Little gold ain't gonna hurt. Israel goes to Ai, town so small it could only fit two letters in its name, and they get routed, and they're crying out to God, and, and and Joshua is begging God for mercy, and God says, "What are you crying to me for? You've got sin in the camp." And so they he 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 gets everybody in front of him and narrows it down, starting with the big tribes. He narrows it down to the right tribe and then he narrows it down to the right family group and to the right patriarch and eventually gets it down to Achan. And then Joshua tells him something interesting. He says, give God glory and tell me what you've done. You see, even when we're wrong, we can give God glory just by admitting our wrong. Did you know that? Boy, you screw up, I screw up. (laughs) Unfortunately, I got a little too much by telling him what I've done wrong. I bring him a little too much glory in confession. Maybe maybe, maybe you're like me. Maybe, Maybe you need to be like me and confess a little more. I, I don't know. But when we give God glory, whether it's admitting our fault, whether it's admitting his praise, telling what he has done, when we give him glory, when we speak the truth about God, that's how we're responding to our view of him. And so it starts by seeing him in the right light and then it's by responding to what we see in the right light. And then there's a third aspect. Fear God, give him glory. By the way, because the hour of his judgment has come. It's time for judgment. That's, that you need to fear God and you need to give him glory right now because it's time. The judgment has come. There's no more delay. There's no more God withholding his hand, waiting for people to respond in repentance. There's no more of that. It's time to give God glory right now because the hour has come. The wait is over. The third thing, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's how we talk about God. So one is how we see him. One is how we relate to him. And one is how we relate him to others. This is a call to response. This is a call to see God in the right way to change our attitude toward him, to, to direct ourselves in the right manner toward him, and then to extend out to others and to demonstrate the praise of God before them. This is a call for us to respond to the impending judgment. The second angel has a call. It's a call to recognize. First angel calls us to respond. The second angel calls us to recognize. Recognize what? Verse 8. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This angel is talking about this, this Babylon the Great. Now, who is Babylon the Great? Is it, is it the Catholic Church? Some commentators have said it's the Catholic Church. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther. I like to say that I think I think he may have had a little bit of bias against Catholicism. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe so. Some have said that. Some have said other things. They've said that it's a political system. It's a way of a way a spirit of the age, kind of a thing. For me, throughout all of Scripture, Babylon the Great represents the enemies of God. Even from Genesis, you know, you know when people opposed God's command to to go go out into the world, be fruitful, multiply, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, right? God gave that command. And instead, everybody said, let's all get together in one city and build a tower. Do you know what the name of that city was called? Babel, right? Where do you think that was? Babylon. There's a reason those names are similar. It's the same place. People have been flocking to Babylon to oppose God for millennia now. And 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 it's not just the place. It's not just the city. It's the things that are represented in the city. You see, because the Tower of Babel represented a, a, a outright disrespect of God's commands. We are not going to go out. We're not going to separate. We're going to come together and do what we want to do and make a name for ourselves and build ourselves up. And make this great tower to reach into heaven because we're man and we can do it. And all the while, God's looking down saying, no, really? And ever since, ever since, we've needed interpreters. You ever notice that the United Nations today, even even with a language like English, that a large portion of the world speaks, it's still not a majority of the world. Only about 30% of the world can speak English, German, French. They're not. They're not majority. No language, no language since Babel, has had a majority of the world speakers, except possibly Greek, ancient Greek, made it, and even that's questionable. That's just folks we know about. Babylon also represents God's enemies throughout the time of the exile. You think back. Babylon has a has a. a, a History mired in conflict uh, years and years back and forth where Babylon would be a great city and then it would kind of fall into disrepair and, and, and a bit of ruin and, and, and it would be more of a backwater and then it would rise back up and fall and rise and fall. It, it happened several times. By the time the late 600s, early 500s BC, uh, Babylon was the world power. Jeremiah 52 describes what happened when Babylon, when the Babylonian army led by Nebuchadnezzar finally broke through the walls of Jerusalem, and it was terrible. Women eating children, terrible. It was bad. They were the instruments of God's wrath. Habakkuk is complaining. He says, don't you see all the terrible things your people are doing? When are you going to judge them? And God says, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to use the Babylonians. And he's like, what? (laughs) They're worse! (laughs) Yeah. Even, even God's enemies, God's using to do His will and His people. By the way, interestingly enough, ever since the exile, have you ever heard, have you ever heard of devout Jews turning aside to false gods? Now there's some ethnic Jews that don't care much about the religion. but But the religious Jews are very staunch. They don't even want you to suggest there's another God. I think they learned the lesson. Babylon, in Revelation chapter 17, we'll see that she is the mother of idolatry and abomination. Babylon is representative throughout the scripture as God's enemies. And the second angel calls us to recognize. Recognize what? Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon doesn't stand anymore. Where's the tower? Where are the great kingdoms? The might of Nebuchadnezzar. The hanging gardens that were one of the wonders of the ancient world. Where are they? Fallen. God's enemies will be felled. There is nothing, there is nothing that they can do to overcome the fact that he will destroy them. Notice this is, this is in perfect tense. Fallen. It's it's not, it's not it's not a future tense. We'll be fallen. That just doesn't carry the same, does it? It just doesn't sound right. It's not we'll be fallen. From the perspective of this angel, it's already fallen. God's already marked it for destruction. And it's only a matter of making it visible to everybody else. The call to recognize that God's enemies will be destroyed. So first, we see a call to respond to who God is, to how we think of him, to to put him in the right frame of mind we see a call to recognize that his enemies are doomed now the third angel's call I'm calling this the call to recoil let me let me show you what i mean verse 9 and another angel a third follow them and this angel the first angel told us uh, uh, how to respond to God. The second one told us that judgment is coming on God's enemies. The third one's going to give us more details about that judgment. And he's going to show us who is being judged. Look in verse nine. Another angel, a third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, who's the one who is judged? The one who worships the beast. The one who receives his mark. Now, this is not a both and where like, okay, so if I worship, but I don't receive the mark, then I'm free and clear, right? No, not gonna work that way. It's not, well, I didn't really worship, but I'm gonna say I did and get the mark so I can still buy and sell. So I'm still good, right? No, it ain't gonna work that way. You see, those who are not committed to Christ, those who are not serving God, will worship. And they will be marked. Those who do worship Christ will not worship and will not take his mark. Why? Because they've got the real thing. Why do they need a fake? Why do they need the counterfeit when they know the true Christ? You see, the one who is judged is the one who throws his lot in with the beast who, who takes the mark on his hand or on his head. The one who worships his image. It also Verse 10, he also tells us how they are going to be judged. Look in verse 10. He, the one who receives the mark, the one who worships the beast, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Now there's an interesting parallel here. Back in verse 8, he says, Fallen is Babylon the Great, who, uh, who made all nations drink the wine of her passion. Not only have they drunk the wine of her passion, now they're going to drink the wine of God's wrath. By the way, it's full. This isn't diluted. The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This isn't watered down. This isn't, I'm going to punish you a little bit so that you learn the lesson. Time for that's gone. This is full-fledged wrath. It's not the only judgment. He will also, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Did you see that? This isn't just he will be tormented away from us so we don't have to look at. He is going to be tormented not only with the with the angels and with the Lamb being able to see him, but with him being able to see them. The torment will come not only from him being pushed aside, Depart from me. I never knew you. But from him having to look into the Lamb's face and know that that's correct. Know that he had the chance and he rejected him anyway. And then, as if that weren't enough, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. Perhaps the worst part of all is that there's no relief. As bad as it is, as terrifying as the judgment of God is, This one hits me home. It'd be one thing if it was temporary. It'd be one thing if it was meted out for a time and then there was an end. There's no end to this. It's permanent. Thankfully, you don't have to face this judgment. John interjects, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. You want to know how to avoid this judgment? You want to know how to not be the one tormented, facing the full wrath of God for all eternity? You want to know how not to be that one? How not to face judgment? Keep your faith in Christ and obey his commands. It's a call for us to endure. This is not a call for us to sit idly by. This is not a call for us to, to hunker down in a shelter somewhere and say, all right, hurry up, God, hurry, hurry, hurry. This is a call for us to engage in the spiritual warfare that's going on around us and to make sure as many people have the opportunity from us to hear the eternal gospel that that first angel is proclaiming, to have the chance to heed the warnings. We can't make them. We can't make them repent. But by God, we better give them a chance. By God, we better tell them. By God, we better warn them. Heaven responds to the three angels. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This contrast of the wicked, restless in eternal torment, and the faithful resting in their labor. There's two different ways you can apply this passage, this sermon. One is for those of you who are not the saints. One is for those of you who have not given your heart to Christ. One is for those of you who have not surrendered to him. To you I say, you must heed the warnings of God's impending judgment on all humanity. These warnings are written here so that you don't have to live them out. I'd love to help you do that. Reach out to me this week. For those of you who have, who have followed Christ, who who know what God has said, who have followed him, who have chosen to be his, who have given your heart to Christ. However you might want to think of it, however you might want to say it. Those of you who are following Christ, there's a different application for you. And that is in verse 12. It's a call for endurance. Keep fighting the fight. Keep telling others. Keep doing what God has commanded you to do. Keep your faith in Jesus Christ. You will be blessed. Father, for those of us who don't know you, I pray that you would work in their hearts. I pray that you would stir them and in a sense kind of torment them. In a sense, bring home the realization of the impending judgment. It may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen for a thousand more years. But God, your judgment is sure and it is pending. So God, I pray that you would Bring home the reality of that. But even more than that, you would show them your love for them. Your love that is so great that you would personally become human in the man Jesus Christ that you would live a sinless life, to die a perfect death, to stand in their place and take the judgment and wrath that belongs to them on your shoulders so that they can wear your righteousness on theirs. Father, I pray that you would bring the message home, that you would convict them and that you would help them know you. I pray that you would put someone nearby for them to talk to, that they can have counsel on how to be yours, how to be right with you. Father, for those who know you, I pray that they would endure. I pray that they would be faithful in their endurance, that they would keep faith in you. And God, that they would work to obey your commands with every ounce of energy, with with never-ending zeal, to accomplish your work on earth as it is in heaven. Father, help us to honor you with our lives. Help us to respond to you, to recognize your victory, and to recoil from anything that demands our allegiance other than you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.